Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Central bankers continue to battle inflation, again fueling fears of a recession next year, one that could coincide uh, with what is expected to be a hotly contested U.S. presidential race. But last week was all about the Paris Air Show and headlines across the board, whether French President Emmanuel Macron's drive for better European air and missile defenses, as well as a greener future, Belgium joining the Franco-German-Spanish SCAF program as an observer, and a number of big commercial aircraft orders, and some reporting from our very own team on where we stand on the U.S. Air Force's top secret and top priority next generation air dominance program. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Chusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. All of us were uh, sweating uh, at uh, Le Bourget last uh, week, uh, or I should say this, this last coming week, and we are all almost back home with the exception of one of our number. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us, especially today, uh, given that we're either all recuperating or still on the move. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Vago. And it was great to see all of you last week. Yeah, it really was a great time. And uh, happy Paris Air Show hangover to everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially everybody uh, who did it. it. It was big and yet not big. And we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute, right? I mean, Shelley Road did not seem as crowded as it had uh, in years past, but that's never an indicator of what's uh, actually going on, because I think it was an extraordinarily busy show, depending on, on where you were sitting. Ron, uh, start us off, right? I mean, broader market uh, dynamics, still some inflation uh, uh, worries and, and really some recession worries, right? As As the market has been sort of multipolar on this, right? Oh my God, it's a big deal. Oh my God, it's not. Oh my God, it is. Oh my God, it's not. We had bankers increasing rates. Still some talk about uh, short-term interest rate rises as, as folks are trying to battle core inflation, the resuscitating then uh, re- recession fears. How did the group perform against the broader market? Uh, you know, and if you want to touch on some Paris headlines, you, you can do so if, if, they, if they were in fact driving sentiment. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, you know, the, the uh, recession that never came Still might not come. <laughs> People are worried about it. Right. Um, but, you know, if you look at the market, maybe not so much. I mean, it seems like we're in a broader market trading range. S&P was down a percent. Um, the winners in my world really were the aftermarket names. Transdime was up three and a half percent. Heiko was up three and a half percent. You know, Raytheon Technologies had an investor day. Uh, they At the event, they were down about a percent on the week. Boeing was down about four and a half percent. That's on the spirit news. Um, Spirit Aerosystems um, was down a bunch in the week just because of uh, the strike news. Um, and the defense names were roughly flat. You know, Northrop was, you know, flat. Lockheed was flat. So defense outperformed a bit. The aftermarket names did quite well. And then the uh, OE names, not so much. The things we track, you know, the VIX, the uh, index, the measurement of kind of fear in the market is uh, in, the, in the low 13s, 13, 13.4. Uh, that's in line with uh, five-year lows. Uh, you know, Brent crude, 74, WTI, 70. They've been in those ranges now for quite some time. And then the 10-year is at um, uh, 3.75. Uh, you know, in the last month, it's been trading between 3.7 and 3.8%. So that's in that trading range as well. So, you know, honestly, for a lot of the talk, about inflation and markets and recessions. I mean, the market's been kind of in a sort of 
summer range, you know, I mean, we're kind of in a summer trading session. Right. Um, and, and that's what it feels like. Uh, very, uh, very interesting indeed. Although what's interesting, right, is that our flirting with debt default has had still some permanent repercussions, right? We discussed that you, you, you uh, hosted a dinner uh, and uh, Richard and I were honored to be able to join you. And that was kind of an interesting sentiment with your investors, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, the market doesn't forget and, you know, the market doesn't like the U.S. kind of playing chicken that way. And, you know, still, if you look at the credit default swap spread where they are today versus where they were before all that shenanigans happened, they're higher and they'll probably be higher for a while, if not, you know, forever. And what? And I'm not going to ask you this question again. I was going to ask you a markup question and it doesn't seem really to be factoring in, anybody, in anybody's uh, uh, thinking. Right. I mean, you discussed what the what the broader uh, spending uh, sentiment was. Uh Sash, uh, talk to us a little bit from a European perspective and how the group uh, uh, performed last week. Uh, and again, if you want to touch on some Paris headlines, go ahead. But we're going to take a much deeper dive uh, in, into all of that later in the program. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. So European stocks were overall off about a half a percent. Civil was up just under a percent. And the defense stocks were, were down on average uh, about a percent. Um there were really only, I think, a couple of standouts uh, from last week. Um, that's the aviation up 4% uh, on the week. And I think that was a, you know, partly a Paris air show effect, but I'll come back to that in a second. But I think more that French companies that we spoke to are much more confident that Dassault is going to win the Indian Navy uh, fighter competition uh, for 26 aircraft. The competition is, is Boeing uh, with the F-18. Um, but it's sort of widely expected that that will be announced either when President Modi visits uh, France or Paris for Bastille Day, uh, 14th of July, or at the very latest, uh, when uh, President Macron visits um, New Delhi for Indian Independence Day on the 15th of August. Uh, but the fact that there are two possible uh, dates that have been set up for that, I think is, is quite significant. Uh, and it was also clearly quite significant that the big uh, Indian-US uh, trade deals that were announced last week did not include an F-18 order. I think if they had done, then um, you know that 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 would have killed that as chances. But now I think you know French companies we're talking to are just much more optimistic about that. So Dassault was the standout. The other one was MTU up five percent. MTU Aero Engines uh, they actually uh, had a positive trading statement, uh, effectively a, um, a profit upside warning at the very beginning of the week. A very positive management meeting at the show and. Uh, the company is just, I think, performing much better. Most of the risk issues that they were worried about at the start of this year simply haven't come through. Costs, inflation, um, uh, you know, the, the dollar euro rate, all of those things which they thought were could really derail them this year haven't done so. And so they're able to absorb, and I'm sure we're going to come back to this, the problems of the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan way better, arguably, than Pratt & Whitney gear. So th those, those were the standouts. Everybody else came off of it. And just one other point. There's a, a quite a, a, an easy to track uh, theme for the big companies in air shows that they actually outperform before the air show, they underperform afterwards. And we really started to see that even by the end of Wednesday. So uh, most of the stocks in our sector had outperformed. Uh, they were up between, you know, four and five percent uh, from the beginning of June to uh, the end of the week before the air show. Uh, and they started to give that up all the way through air show week. Boeing is the worst performer. Uh, Boeing went all the way back again, uh, and it's actually now down uh, compared to the uh, beginning of June. But you could see every single stock gave it up. And why is that? Because once you're about three days into the air show, from an investor's point of view, there's probably no more good news to be right. had. Uh, everything's in the price. And then 
you know, you might as well sell and do something else with the money. And that was a, you know, that trade works pretty well for most air shows, certainly did for this one. And, and unfortunately, uh, as much as we all love air, air shows, they are getting compressed. Uh, you're seeing less stuff happening later and indeed fewer people staying even through the Thursday uh, as, as, they, uh, as they used to, even if some respect the event itself starts sooner with the Paris Air Forum that's on Friday that have uh, a lot of senior executives in town for, uh, which which I think is uh, is interesting. Just really quickly, uh, Sash, uh, following up on why it would be the Rafal M that would be the winner of this is is that because the the French have excuse me the Indians already have twenty four Rafals uh, for the nuclear mission. I mean, is that why you have a little bit more fleet uh, commonality instead of going with the F eighteen? Yeah, yeah, actually, it's thirty six on order. Um, and I suspect excuse me I, I'm sorry yeah. my mistake um, uh, so yeah fleet commonality has a huge amount to, to go for it um, and remember that's not just spares and support but that's also weapons everything that's qualified for uh, the Rafale C on land uh, carries across the Rafale M uh, and there's a there's a very good industrial package set up you know uh, uh, Dassault Reliance uh, Aeronautics Limited are producing parts for the uh, Falcon 2000 they're going to start producing or starting to produce parts for Rafale they'll probably end up, you know, assembling bits of Rafale or even uh, whole aircraft. Um, that sort of thing really matters to the Indians. They want to bring technology into the country. They want to develop their uh, national aerospace industry. And you just don't see as much of that, uh, albeit there was the announcement last week that General Electric would allow um, uh, licensed manufacturer of the F-014 engine. Uh, but that's, you know, that's probably five years before you, you see real workload for Indian industry, uh, the French are already there. And how many aircraft are we talking about to equip uh, the Indian uh, Navy? It's probably 28 to start with. And then and the Indians tend to buy in in blocks. So 28 aircraft to start with. If they get another aircraft carrier, then it would probably be another 20 or so. Um, we're going to uh, get to a lot more Paris uh, headlines in a moment. Richard, uh, you've been very patient, uh, and I want to bring you in on the spirit discussion. When we spoke last week, uh, we thought we had a contract, right? A 34% pay rise, uh, which at the time we viewed as being pretty pretty uh, generous, but the rank and file uh, voted that down, saying that it wasn't good enough, that it had been uh, 13 years since their last contract. Uh, there were COVID impacts uh, to consider, as well as uh, rising inflation. Uh, and I think many people will sympathize with some of those uh, sentiments, especially over that time period. Uh, we uh, were heading toward a strike, then both sides started talking again. Um, where are we again? And what are the implications uh, that uh, even at 34%, as we discussed last week, would have been setting right what might have been a new floor? And now we're looking at something more than 34%, right? Uh, and this, as Boeing is going to be looking to negotiate its contract with machinists. Richard, kind of walk us through what all of this means. And I would like to uh, everybody to take a bite at it, because this could be kind of a really um, tectonic event with an important company in the ecosystem negotiating a contract that's that's going to, right? I mean, why were automakers so tough with, uh, you know, the auto workers? Because once, you know, Chrysler gave them more money, that meant Ford and GM were going to give them more money too. Go ahead. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on here, as you say. Uh, but the important thing is we're not really having a conversation about Spirit. We're having a conversation about the broader jetliner manufacturing industry. Uh, a couple macro forces. Uh, one is that, it's been decades of deflation, both for the real price of a jetliner uh, relative to, say, 20 years ago. It's uh, about the same 
in uh, nominal terms and therefore has been deflating one uh, or two percent per year in real terms and more so recently with inflation. Second, of course, uh, you know, workers' wages in real terms, not great. Hasn't been a great time to be aerospace labor for decades. And of course, there's been uh, a rather contentious attitude, um, on, perhaps on both sides at uh, various points, but it's been deflating and, and very hard on workers and organized labor. Um, but now all of a sudden, things have changed. Obviously, <laughs> you've got labor, the single hardest and biggest and stickiest component of inflation. Um, that looks like it's far more durable than the energy and materials components of inflation. Um, and most importantly, it's a, a somewhat uh, it's a somewhat fungible uh, issue. In, in other words, if um, Spirit pays its people X amount more, say it's 40% over four years or, or conceivably even more, um, that goes throughout the food chain. Um, certainly in the greater Wichita area, probably for an awful lot of the greater, you know, aerospace ecosystem. And meanwhile, you've got defense procurement heading up to uh, way past record levels. And that's a further complication because those are cost plus contracts in many cases and have better pass through provisions in many cases for inflation, which means they can pay people what they need to pay. So the broader market for labor and aerospace is extremely inflationary. This is more of a reflection of that in a lot of ways, kind of a, a harbinger of things to come. And uh, everything's going to have to be rethought. Meanwhile, of course, Boeing has done everything it possibly can to pressure its suppliers for the past couple of decades. You know, uh, spinning off spirit was one example of that. You know, let them find their own way, create a center of excellence, you know, access capital at their own terms. Um, and, and of course, you had partnering for success and other great margin grabs. Basically, they've regarded in some ways their supply chain as a bit of an ATM, but now it is all their responsibility. It's not a question of you know, well, will anyone fail? No, Boeing has to make everyone whole. If they wish to build aircraft, it is their responsibility. So this is all a bunch of stuff that I think is is was inevitable. Um, this just happens to be the, you know, headline-driven flashpoint, the spirit thing, but it's a long time coming. And uh, I think it's, as you say, got uh, got ramifications that will uh, will keep going for, for quite some time to come. Uh, Ron, uh, your your sense, uh, you, you put out uh, a couple of uh, great notes on it. And last week, you, you started off our discussion. And in a minute, Sash, I'm going to come to you to try to get it, because whatever happens on this side of the uh, ocean is obviously going to happen on that side of the ocean uh, as well, right? I mean, given that Airbus pressures its uh, suppliers, but then also has to support them uh, at, as well. Ron, your, your sense on where we stand and where we're headed and, and where we're likely to end up. You know, we met with Spirit's management team at the show, and they, they seemed you know, reasonably confident that the union was going to go for it for good reason. I mean, the union leadership said they would go for it, um, and the union didn't. Uh, I think it was 82% of the union that voted against it. Uh, so they are on a strike. They're talking, but they're striking. Um, you know, so where does it go? I mean, I think Richard's points are all well taken. Uh, kind of what I heard was it's all about not getting paid enough. Uh, they hadn't had a negotiation for... 13 years it was supposed to be 10, but then it got pushed three because of COVID. Uh, cost of living has gone up. Um, we did some analysis. If you compare the, the wages, the average wages at Spirit to average wages for the aerospace industry and kind of average wages in the U.S. And compared to the aerospace industry, actually, the Spirit workers have done 
course. I mean, you can kind of, you know, put out a note, you're going to see it over time. It's relative to the industry. It's gone down. Uh, Boeing workers aren't in the same situation fish for what it's worth. Boeing workers has actually gone up relative to the industry. Uh, but also, you know, on average in the Puget Sound, probably the cost of living has gone up a heck of a lot more than it has in, the, in Wichita. So that might be a factor too. So we'll, we'll see where it all goes. I mean, the, the, the question that's on top of investors' minds is how long is this going to last and how disruptive will it be? Um, I kind of remind folks last time Boeing had a strike, if you remember, it was going into the financial crisis and that, that three-month strike was one quarter, took them the better part of three years to recover from. So really, in terms of the ramp right now and how fragile things are in the Boeing production system anyway, because of all the things we've talked about over the last two years, this is the last thing they need. And it would be really good for the industry and for Boeing if they could get it sorted out quickly. Um, our best guess is, you know, we're going into uh, the 4th of July weekend and, you know, they have um, basically latitude. Uh, their strike pay starts in three weeks, um, I guess maybe two and a half weeks now. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of time on the side of the union at the moment. So hopefully it doesn't extend out a month or so, but you know, we'll see and you know, we'll see where it goes. I mean, uh, ultimately, and this was the title of the note we wrote power to the people. Um, and you know, it, it, I think that's where we are. Uh, it, and it's interesting, right? Because at that point, uh, Boeing, uh, management, uh, and Jim McNerney was, uh, CEO then. I mean, the focus really was try to break the labor movement, right? And and the South Carolina decision came from that, right? I mean, a lot of the decisions came in the wake of that, um, you know, and, and kind of how to reduce uh, the company's unionized footprint and, and indeed you, reduce its uh, footprint, I think, in the Pacific Northwest, ultimately, uh, as, as, as well. Um, by the way, speaking of voting, uh, I just wanted to urge our listeners uh, to vote for Ron and his great Bank of America team uh, in Institutional Investors, uh, otherwise known as II's annual uh, rankings. He and his global team really do uh, an in incredible job, and I find uh, their top quality uh, reporting and analysis integral to what I do uh, every day. Ron, at the risk of uh, embarrassing you with this, uh, right? I mean, the voting deadline is right around the corner, right? Yeah, the, the ballots close this Tuesday and uh, any support we can get out there from uh, any of the institutional investors listening in, that would be great. Uh, it would, would be terrific indeed, because again, you and your team do uh, a terrific job. Uh, Sash, uh, I want to go uh, over to you and follow up a little bit on uh, the whole uh, spirit question, right? I mean, we're seeing how this could affect the ecosystem in the United States. You know, Ron uh, and, and Richard talked about the impact on the supply chain. Richard mentioned the margin impact. Obviously, Airbus takes smaller margins historically than American contractors. What, what are the knock-on implications uh, in, in Europe uh, over what's happening with Spirit and on wages? Well, there's a real worry about contagion. Um, the Spirit numbers just don't bear any relationship at all to the uh, numbers that European industrials overall have been settling at. I mean, Germany, uh, annual wage settlements have been uh, have been in the range of three to six percent, and generally towards the bottom end of that. Sometimes uh, there have been one-off um, payments of about a thousand uh, euros to, as a sort of cost of living uh, increase. But um, you know, even multi-year, this idea that you can recover uh, many years of um, uh, you know wage erosion that just is not um, not how the European aerospace and defence sector, or indeed the wider European industrials, are working. And so I think there is a worry that what, what happens in America may not stay in America. Uh, Spirit has got a number of Air, Airbus contracts, both uh, in the US, but also through its uh, European businesses. Um, and European industrials just won't, you know, I mean, the UEMs, Airbus won't pay 
for uh, for, for spirits wage inflation. Um, that because that is just you know regarded as being uh, excessive. So you know it's a real problem of uh, you know a system not or you know that bit of the system not working. As an aside, Airbus were really interesting. They had an investor meeting. Um, uh, Wednesday of the Paris Air Show, and they were very interesting about their own aerostructures businesses. You'll remember they had two businesses, Stelia and Premium Aerotech, which were analogous to Spirit uh, in terms of where they fit into the Airbus ecosystem. They were created uh, about 15 years ago, and it was envisaged that Airbus would spin them off. Airbus has just given up on that altogether. They say Aerostructures is absolutely core to what we Airbus do. The next aircraft are going to be way more integrated in terms of uh, the airframe and the propulsion system. And the idea that we would uh, spin off the businesses that are going to be core to how we make the next generation of, of aircraft, you know, whether it's a flying wing or something else, is completely foreign to them. And this makes the spin off of Spirit from Boeing just look, you know, it, it doesn't look as if it works. Uh, and it seems to limit Boeing's own flexibility. Plus, you've got this late labor problem. Um, uh, in, in Europe, Spirit would probably be renationalized by Airbus. And just a quick word from all of our sponsors Leonardo, DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and uh, naval uh, coverage. Um, all right, let's uh, quickly uh, go around the horn. Ron, start us off uh, just on the commercial side. Uh, whether expect, you know, what, what you guys found interesting over the course of the show, there was some discussion about whether or not this would be the biggest order show ever, although we did see some pretty big orders uh, come through. Uh, we saw some news with uh, uh, the um, stretched uh, Embraer airplane, as well as the stretched uh, for uh, single aisle and then the stretched uh, 220, uh, the C-Series, the Bombardier airplane that's now part of the Airbus family. Everybody walk us through what we thought of that before we go uh, to the defense part of the discussion on NCAD, on, on SCAF, and a couple of other things before we wrap for the week. Ron, start us off on the, on the sort of broader commercial stuff that jumped out uh, at you. Yeah, I'd say broadly on commercial, there weren't really all that many surprises. And, you know, the big orders that happened had already been announced. Um, you know, I, I think there was some head scratching. There still is some head scratching. We've talked about it on the show, uh, how how much these big orders out of India really mean. You know, is the infrastructure there? How much double ordering is going on? And, and those questions were raised at the show. I think broadly on the supply chain, the consensus was things are getting better, but you heard from some suppliers, maybe things are getting better. But uh, I think the best way to, to frame it, one supplier said to us, yeah, it's better. We're only, we only got shot five times instead of six. So, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on what you're doing, where you're doing. Uh, the, the lead times on, on special metals, uh, you know, the special steels that get used in bearing, bearings and landing gear, they're stretching now. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's still a challenge. Uh, I would say along that front, and maybe this is why some of the names that have aftermarket exposure were up this week, it was a pretty crystal clear message. If you're a supplier and you can deliver, you're going to get price and not just price that includes inflation, you're going to get price for executing. And this goes back to, I think, Richard's comments on the industry and, and specifically around the, 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 uh, the inflationary aspects of the industry that not only does labor want to get paid more, but the suppliers who can actually execute are commanding a premium. And in the end, Airbus and Boeing, particularly Boeing, are going to have to adjust to that. 
Um, Sash, give us your sense, and then Richard, yours. Yeah, look, in terms of the um, overall number of orders, best show uh, for, for orders since 2017 in terms of be- in terms of firm orders, because, you know, there's an awful lot of MO, MOUs and LOIs and, you know, alphabet suits, which will probably turn into orders at some stage, but, you know, it, they're still lower quality. They're, they're, they're effectively bringing the order forward for the show. But in terms of firm orders, best it was the best show since 2011. But, you know, remember that, of the 10,028 uh, 10, firm orders, um, pretty much, you know, the vast majority of those, about almost 90% came from two airlines in India. Uh, so it was a much less good spread of orders than I think, you know, the market had hoped and than we've seen in, in previous shows. That That's the, the reality of it. Um, and it's very hard to see both Air India and Indigo um, being able to uh, live up to the, the traffic forecast that they themselves are making. Richard? Yeah, strong agreement. You know, one problem is, um, as we've discussed before, a bit of uh, potential double counting. You know, everyone was saying, as a matter of fact, Rolls-Royce was very emphatic, saying, ah, Twin Isles are back, Long Haul International is back. Eh, not really. You know, you look at the results of the show, it fit the pattern of recent years. Just orders heavily skewed towards single aisles, very heavily skewed. A lot of the Twin Isle orders may be coming, you know, Turkish, Saudi, whatever. But here again, it's just that double counting. Everyone wants to do what the superconductors did over the last decade, and they can't all do it. It's the same traffic that they're chasing in India just wants their traffic back. They may or may not be able to get it back, but you know that's what they want. And it's it's <laughs> there's just not enough international traffic that needs dedicated long haul um, wide bodies to justify any kind of talk of a wide body resurgence. From the single aisle front, you know, well, we've seen at the show what we've been seeing for years. Please build us jets and get them to us. Single aisles, you cannot build them fast enough. But twin aisles, that remains another story. Let's now shift to next generation air dominance because it does sound like our team uh, in various uh, ways has managed uh, to make a little bit of news. Ron, uh, you learned uh, last week how many demonstrators were involved in this uh, high priority top secret program about which uh, the uh, Air Force and really none of the companies are talking uh, very much. I mean, we don't have any confirmation on who's exactly in the race, although we suspect that it is the big three. It's Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin uh, and Northrop. And we heard the JJ uh, we heard on Thursday that JJ learned that we are down to two competitors in that field, uh, right? Um, we're still trying to get comments from folks. We're still trying to get uh, something official, but at this point, we uh, don't really have everything. Even if folks are privately telling us, yes, you know, that's consistent with uh, with with what we hear, or sort of, um, you know, you have to go through official channels to get comment. Um, uh, Ron, walk, walk us through, you know, what you've learned, what it means. What is the the stuff that JJ has learned and what does that tell us about the program that we didn't really actually know? Because we know, you know, Secretary Kendall started the try before you buy uh, when he was the undersecretary for acquisition and logistics. So there's no surprise that there would be demonstrators built. Uh, and he also said that the competition is still ongoing, but we're, we're really not uh, going to be talking a lot about it until uh, we, we have liftoff anyway. Uh, walk, walk us through what we learned uh, over the past week that meaningfully moves uh, the needle or maybe explain some comments we've been hearing from different executives in different places. And anybody who wants to take a bite at this can do so. I suspect Richard wants to take a bite. Go ahead, start us off. Yeah, I mean, I found it interesting that we, we had confirmation that there were three demonstrators built. Uh, 
and that those three demonstrators uh, were down selected to two. That's what uh, JJ kind of dug up. Uh, so, you know, which, uh, you know, you, you named the three. So who didn't get down selected? Uh, and, and a couple comments there. Um, it's interesting that it's that far along. You know, it wasn't that long ago where we were all speculating, what is it? What's it going to be? How far along is it? Blah, blah, blah. Well, they built a couple couple demonstrators and they down-selected to two. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, the next step is down-selecting to one, right? And um, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the thinking is that could be next year or the following year. So you know, the program is just, you know, bumping, bumping right along. Um, and then we're just trying to figure out, you know, who, who, who was the one potentially who, you know, didn't, didn't make the cut. Uh, probably the consensus view there is given comments from their management and performance in their de- defense business that, that was probably Boeing. Uh, you know, we don't know that for sure, but I mean, it seems, seems pretty reasonable uh, given uh, the, the fact set sitting in front of us. So, so we'll see how it goes, but this is definitely something we're watching and uh, you know, six gen fighter, it's, it's the future. You know, obviously we don't have any official comment from anybody uh, at this point on it. Uh, Richard, from from your standpoint, uh, what does all of this uh, mean? And if you can update us on what you know about where we think the program is going to be, right? That's one of the things that you still uh, track for folks. So, um, you know, is it is it a this year event? Is it a next year event? It's 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 very interesting. A bit of historical comparison, you know. I guess it was um, I want to say it was ninety five, ninety six that you had the first down select in the jazz program. You know the uh, the McDonnell Douglas contender, the um, it, you know the one with the uh, legendary uh, independent turbine for short takeoff and vertical landing, and it practically had stenciled on it, please eliminate me from the competition, you know, just a very polite warning. Um, and that was Given the requirement eliminated. was don't use it, don't use a second engine, right? And, yes. And, it was, and, it was, and that loss drove the uh, the merger with Boeing, right? At the, it sure at the played a big day. role. That in the uh, the 717 or MD95 at the time lost SAS. There were a couple of factors that drove them into the grave. But yeah, I mean, and then of course, when they used Boeing's money to buy Boeing, uh, as, the, as the legend has it. But anyway, it was that moment. And then, you know, what's sort of interesting is it took another, what, five years or four years at least to get to the next down select. Uh, Now, these are different times. The strategic drivers are far more robust. The budgets are far more robust than they were in the second half of the 90s. So I, you know, I think it's a reasonable expectation that they should be able to do that, especially with, you know, the the run up to prototyping activity that has purportedly taken place with this program in the next, uh, you know, 18 months, 24 months, something like that. I think that's very reasonable. Um, and that it's also quite reasonable that as planned, it will enter service around, you know, 20, 2031 or something like that, even with the far more complex and, you know, far more budgetarily strained JSF, you know, the template is, is clearly there. Um, I tend to agree completely with Ron. It, it's pretty clear that Boeing was a dark horse. Not that it's, you know, definite. We don't have that confirmed, of course, but this looks like a competition between Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Having said that, it's been a long time since the Pentagon has purchased an aircraft of this size that didn't have a two-thirds, one-third principal and subprime relationship. In other words, Boeing could easily be one-third of whoever wins, uh, either by mandate or by team sharing or whatever else, and did it for FAXX, which is probably a few years further out in the looks of it. Uh, and and indeed, right there are a lot of folks 
and we heard from Ted Colbert uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, where you know he stressed the production engineering and uh, you know the the ability of the company to actually build things at quality and at scale. Big focus, hiring people, making that investment, uh, and so uh, there is a sense that there could be a role for the you know, and and this is a multifaceted family of systems programs, right? I mean, so three demonstrators, but I, we're assuming that that's for the primary manned air vehicle. There is also going to be common, uh, you know, the the collaborative combat aircraft, uh, as well as potentially some other variants of this, right? I mean, so there's a lot that we don't know, in part because so much of this program is so highly uh, classified. But again, a lot of the discussion has been that the advantage does go with Lockheed. It is the one who's made the the three operational stealth fighters the nation has fielded. Uh, Northrop has been has stealth experience also, obviously, through the bomber uh, portfolio and some other programs, uh, even though we know that Boeing has done some neat things as well, not as clear and certainly no operational airplane we can point to that's a Boeing airplane, right? So uh, ultimately, um, that's the reason why folks have a tendency of thinking that it'll be Lockheed and Northrop. Uh, in in that case, getting over the finish line. Uh, Sash, uh, just be patient with me for one second. I, I do have one follow-up, actually. Um, several friends from each of the companies have noted to me the challenges in building a fifth-generation aircraft. We certainly heard that from Greg Ulmer, uh, Lockheed Martin's aeronautics boss, and somebody who spent much of his career involved in the development of these uh, advanced airplanes. Uh, they're much more difficult than people think. So when you know, folks in Europe talk about, you know, how quickly they're going to get to SCAF or anything else. You know, it, it took the United States with vast resources time to try to get over the finish line. And, and another good friend sort of pointed out, you know, there's a debate on, on numbers. Secretary Kendall has said 200. Uh, we heard from Greg, it'll be closer around to the number of F-22s, right? I guess that's 178 or so. And another friend uh, and another leading company that's that's certainly in, in, the, in the mix uh, said, look, it's, it's going to be such a sophisticated airplane, you know, numbers then become a problem, right? And he was, is it more likely it's 150 or even less than 150, given what the unit cost is going to be, given what it is the Air Force wants to do with this, which we can only let our imaginations run wild, right? This has to penetrate the Western Pacific, manage hundreds of collaborative combat aircraft, you know, have the stealth, have the speed, have the range, uh, and the ability to operate in a completely denied environment, right? It, it puts you in a different little bit of a different ballgame. Ron, what, what's your sense uh, about the sophistication of this and how cost is actually going to play a factor in this? And, and actually, you know, and, and do we end up with an exclu exquisite silver bullet, however, you know, important the program is? I, I certainly hope not. But I mean, you know, Richard can probably speak to this as well. I mean, if you look at the, the more recent history, call it the last 20 years of fighter aircraft development, um, you know, costs have generally gone up. Right. So, you know, given the, the multitude of things that the mission of this thing has to do, um, you know, I, I hope there's a focus on cost so you can, you can get you, know, uh, you can procure quantities of it that that makes sense. But um, it's going to be an expensive asset. I mean, the Air Force has even said so, right? So it's 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 something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Uh, on the aerodynamics side, and just sort of the basic science of that, I'm not too worried about that. It's it, it's the other things on the systems and electronics, and uh, call it artificial intelligence, managing you know clouds of potentially of of, of drones or combat you know uh, aircraft with it, you know unmanned systems. Uh, that's the stuff where things can get pretty expensive. 
Uh, I mean, I think if you look at unmanned portfolios today, right, I mean, uh, they were Global Hawk or you just pick your pick your system. I mean, I think originally they were very they were marketed as being you know kind of less expensive alternatives. Um, most certainly they are from a loss of life perspective, at least from you know the operator's point of view. But from a just dollars and cents point of view, most unmanned systems today, with the exception of very, very, very low, uh, low tech drones have played out to be quite expensive. Right. So that's going to be I think your point is a good point and it's something that's going to have to be watched pretty closely. Uh, Richard, uh, anything you want to add before we go to Sash uh, for uh, just sort of a roundup on uh, some of the big European headlines and whatever else he wants to weigh in on? Go ahead. Yeah. In terms of uh, program outcome, it's important to remember that uh, there's absolutely zero um, historical precedent for anybody being able to say, ah, this will be the number built. Usually it's off, not by a factor of 30%, but by 300, 400, 500%, F-22 being a great example. All the you know the Cold War programs being a fantastic example. But even before that, if you'd ever said, you know, this number of F-15s would have been built, <clears throat> I don't think anyone would have believed you. So what are the variables, budget, threat, uh, effectiveness of collaborative combat aircraft, arrival of competing planes, both in the US and elsewhere. There are just so many variables. Could you baseline it now at 150 or 200? Oh, of course, price tag and execution. Those are another factor too. Could you baseline it now at 150, 200? Sure. Does it mean anything if we're having this conversation in uh, 20 years from now in, a, you know, in, in, uh, in retirement or whatever? Um, no, it'll be completely, it'll sound like science fiction and just with the usual rate of success of science fiction predicting the future. Um, I, I just have to uh, just weigh in one second uh, and give Boeing uh, actually uh, some credit because Boeing obviously was a key member of the F-22 team, 40% of the program uh, or so roughly was uh, in their hands. And they also played a key role in the B-2 program. So I don't want to undersell the company's capabilities. Uh, and again, they've got some incredible minds who are working at this and, and also were competitive uh, in the bomber uh, program and also also teamed up with Lockheed Martin. And the Lockheed uh, guys uh, and and the Boeing guys were both impressed at what each had behind the curtain, right? So, I mean, this this is a wide open race. And for all we know, I, I could end up being surprised as to who uh, ends up, uh, you know, fielding the uh, fielding the airplane ultimately. So I just thought it's important to say that. Uh, Seth, you know, it's also, uh, if I may, just, uh, it's uh, pretty important to notice that a couple, couple of uh, months ago, they announced the opening of a post-assembly treatments facility for stealth and whatever else. So that was an interesting sign that they were investing in the future and felt confident about playing some kind of role, if only with stealth coatings, uh, in their part of the program. Well, and, and I should point out, right, that FAXX, uh, the Navy's uh, high-priority uh, combat aircraft and fighter program, is going to piggyback off of NGAD. And we know that the Navy's bias is toward McDonnell Douglas and Boeing, right? No offense to anybody else, but right, Northrop Grumman and um, uh, Boeing have been the historic providers of combat aircraft to the United States Navy, uh, right? So uh, again, I mean, if if there's a setback here, it doesn't mean automatically that it will be reflected in the next program. So you know, if if there is a setback for Boeing on NCAD, it doesn't mean that you know the company still doesn't have a very good shot. Uh, going forward in, uh, you know, or, and oh, by the way, then there are the collaborative combat aircraft uh, where uh, Boeing obviously uh, has made some investment with Ghost Bat and other uh, systems as well. Anyway, I just want to be, uh, you know, careful not to let any hairs running 
even if we think there are uh, folks who might be doing better than others in this standpoint as to who those the, the two are. Um, Sash, uh, let me uh, bring you into this. You've been very patient. First, any comment you want to make in terms of what NGAD was uh, was happening. But I also wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the SCAF news. Obviously, Belgium uh, coming aboard uh, on the SCAF program as an observer. Eric Trappier saying that observers watch uh, and they, they don't touch all that much uh, in the program what the messaging you got was in terms of how the relationship is going between Dassault and Airbus, which has been a little bit tense. The French company has said uh, in the past, uh, even though I think everybody made a, a good job of um, making sure uh, that uh, it looked like a real partnership, uh, right? Every All the company's names were on uh, the product. It looks like uh, the demonstrator will be powered maybe by uh, the M88 that powers the Rafale. Uh, and Dassault also talking about the importance of having a sovereign combat cloud and how to build that sovereign combat cloud. And obviously, we have Emmanuel Macron announcing the missile, air and missile defense thing. Anyway, kind of walk us through all of these themes and any other themes you that jumped out at you as interesting from a European defense uh, perspective, because it was it was a big show for, for that. And the European companies certainly were putting their best foot forward. Yeah, look, it was a fantastic show for defense. I haven't got so much out of a, a, a major European air show for defense Oh, well over a decade. It reminded me actually how boring it is just counting tally on civil aircraft orders. There are more important things that go on in this industry. <laughs> um, and we really had it this week. The, you know, the defense themes, as you rightly point out, missile defense, um, but also, you know, electronic warfare, radar, um, and so forth. And, and even, you know, future helicopters. Hypersonics, hypersonics yeah, were hypersonics, huge, all of, I thought. Yeah, all of that was there. SCAF, first of all. Oh, boy, what a dreadful week for SCAF. Um, the same mock-up that was at the Paris Air Show four years ago was sitting just outside, uh, whatever it is, hall number two. I think they must have given it a lick of paint, but no more. And nobody visited it. Nobody was inside the perimeter of that all week. Um, uh, we had colleagues who were just saying, look, it's the forlorn aircraft, or forlorn combat aircraft system, FCAS. No, you know, nobody, nobody wanted to acknowledge the existence of this, frankly, fairly pathetic. It's not even demonstrator, it's a... It's a, it's a broad form uh, mock-up. Um, mu the music between Dassault and Airbus was dreadful. Um, really, really bad. Uh, Airbus are making a good, I think making a pretty good effort at it. Dassault were just saying, we're not sharing stuff that matters and that's the flight control system. Um, we're running the demonstrator, we're running the, uh, the air vehicle. Um, it's quite a long way off. So whereas before the show, BA Systems uh, and their partners uh, on the, um, you know, the UK-led uh, Tempest Global Combat Air, uh, Aircraft Program were talk actually showing major pieces of, uh, uh, you know, components that they are building, stuff they're testing, ejector seat and so forth. SCAF, they're just doing paper studies. What's it going to look like? Um, and I really got the feeling that Dassault's not that interested in SCAF in its current form. They would rather go out and sell a ton more Rafales, and they probably can do as well. And that SCAF really is a sort of story for the, the 2030s. But I, I did not come away feeling particularly good about SCAF whatsoever. Um, and on the missile defense thing, I mean, what I thought was interesting is uh, France is always trying to lead uh, Europe and, and there's uh, a, a tremendous value in, in doing that. As we've discussed on this program, France can have vision and drive. The challenge is that then its allies and partners think that they're, that, that it's not about European sovereignty that's the issue. It's, it's actually all about France, uh, as unfortunately uh, several friends uh, uh, said to me, and even some French friends sadly conceded uh, 
from from your standpoint, do you see any sort of pan-European efforts sort of coalescing, um, absent which, whether it's on hypersonics, whether it's on combat clouds, whether it's on anything else, it becomes problematic. I mean, um, as as a um, uh, as a European friend said, sovereignty, whose sovereignty, European sovereignty or French sovereignty? And when the French talk about French sovereignty, that tends to set everybody else's hackles off. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty Because they want their uh, own sovereignty in it as well. Yeah, that, that, that's a pretty cutting comment. And I recognize I've, I've heard stuff like that. Um, I mean, just to, to remind our um, listeners, um, there's actually been a European collaborative uh, missile defense program, the uh, European Sky Shield Initiative, which the Germans initiated, uh, I think it was last, uh, uh, yes, last year. Um, and this was uh, initially intended as a means of the Germans rebooting their own air defense program. You remember they had the uh, totally unlamented Meads stroke GTK program, which was a, an enormous refresh of their Patriot systems, but adding in versions of RST and so forth. And that one sort of, that one really died the death pre-Ukraine. Um, now they're trying to reboot it and um, uh, produce a much more open system, or at least encourage a much more open architecture where not dissimilar to the NASAMS missile system produced by Raytheon and Kongsberg, uh, you can have a, a battle management system that can much more easily integrate almost anybody else's radar, almost anybody else's missiles, rather than the whole system being proprietary. Um, it, 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 you know, it may come as a bit of a shock to some of our listeners, but the fact that Germany proposed ESSI, European Sky Shield Initiative, and not French, took President Macron and his advisors enormously by surprise and they're very upset and they've been trying to um right you know come up with different solutions i don't think that got a great deal of traction at the show this week but i think what was interesting is that particularly under the uh, aegis of mbda um there is starting to be some quite serious work done on hypersonic interceptors and although i think you could argue that starting with the missile and working out to the system is the wrong way to go because actually the entire architecture of hypersonic missile defense has to start with detection and detection probably has to start in space. And the interceptor is almost the easy bit of it. The fact is at least someone's doing it. And I think that, that was that was really positive and uh, a, you know, fantastic learning experience for me personally. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much. It was terrific seeing uh, all of you in the show, uh, at the show in person. Richard, I'm sorry I didn't make it to your uh, reception. Uh, and so folks will see on, on the LinkedIn, uh, a great picture of uh, at least three of our uh, four-man team at your uh, lovely end of uh, show uh, recession, uh, reception. Uh, everybody, thanks so very much again uh, for joining us. Uh, have a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. And Ron, bon voyage. Yeah, thanks, Vargo. Wouldn't be a weekend without it. Thanks very much, Anid Vargo. And uh, again, it was great seeing all of you last week. Yeah, it was a really terrific time. Thanks for doing this, Vargo, and uh, see you at the next Paris. Uh, indeed. And everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Sorello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, and a very special thanks for all of you uh, for uh, being so generous with your time and joining us, and to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We look forward to seeing you again on the Weekend program tomorrow. Thanks very much and have a great day.